this passage, Paul talks about the dark side of religion. Religion, like so many things, in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's a good thing, but it becomes bad. And that's simply because humans handle it, and humans work with it, and humans add to it. And in all of that, some of the things that we do with it are good, and some of them are not so good. It's, it's like any medium that we use. We can condemn something like Facebook, but Facebook by itself, uh, the ability to communicate with people around the world is not a bad thing. But in human hands over time, it's easy for us to make something not so good out of it or to make something wonderful out of it. This is also true with religion. So I want to share with you just a good, solid Web, Merriam-Webster's definition of religion. Here's a couple of ways that religion is understood. Religion is the service and worship of God, or the supernatural, commitment or devotion to religious faith or observation, or a personal set of institutionalized or institutionalized system of religious attitudes, beliefs, and practices. So religion is what we believe and what we do in response to God. We derive initially what we do as religious activities and what we believe as religious truth from the scriptures and from the church, but quite naturally, we add to it. Uh, think of what the Jewish leaders did with the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments became 316 principles. And the intention was good. It started, I kind of enjoyed her there, but that's okay. If she comes back, it's fine. <laughs> Thanks, Eddie. Um, it starts out as good. And those that add the specifications, the details of what they believe it is to live out those commandments are working with good intentions to say, hey, this needs clarification. You know, this is a big, broad, generalized command. What does it mean in specifics? And that starts well. Um, but as we know, it can also break down quite quickly and not be so healthy. In this letter, Paul is referring to religious practices and he's encouraging believers to keep themselves free from the judgments and the expectations of others when it comes to the practice of living out their faith in Jesus Christ. Paul refers to practices that were prescribed by God in the original covenant and makes the point that the purposes of these practices have been fulfilled in the life and work of Jesus Christ. These practices were to be done in anticipation of the coming Messiah. God knew that it would take a long time, generations, before he would send Jesus, and he wanted his people to live in the anticipation of the coming of Jesus. In other words, all of the religious commandments and practices that God gave to the people of Israel in the Torah, Genesis through uh, the first five books of the Bible, were in order to set them up to anticipate what was to come. Jesus said, and it's recorded in Matthew 5, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So I want to go with you through a couple of these Old Testament religious uh, prescriptions and practices just to point out again, as you know, that Jesus fulfilled all of these things in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. 
For example, probably one of the most predominant practices in the Old Testament was that of sacrifices. And there were all kinds of sacrifices. And the different sacrifices were to help identify the different ways in which we might sin. Whether we sin against God or we sin against another human, someone within our family, there were, there were prescriptions of sacrifice for any sin that you could commit could commit. There was even a time and a day once a year when there were sacrifices given for all things that we didn't know that we did. <laughs> These were sins that were not in, remembered or were not intentional, just to cover all the bases. What's the point of that? It seems very tedious. The point is God wanted us, he wanted humanity to understand how completely the sacrifice of Jesus would be when it came. Imagine that you lived a life with your family where every time you could identify brokenness, lovelessness, sin in your life, it needed to be accounted for and you made a sacrifice for it. And after a lifetime, generations of that, to be told not one more sacrifice needs to ever be made again. You see that contrast, that relief, like wow. And you can imagine that they would get up on a Sabbath day, you know, after Jesus was risen from the dead, and they might start to get ready for the sacrifices again, and then go, wait a minute, this is done. <laughs> We're done with this. We're not going to do this anymore. We have such a human tendency to carry our history forward. But the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus says once and for all, hey, sin and death have been laid to rest. You don't need to keep bringing this forward. So what then is the problem of, oh, let me remind you of one more place. The Passover, I think, is such a wonderful illustration of how what was practiced for centuries is now fulfilled in Christ. And it's in this way. You remember, what was the Passover celebrating? What was passed over? Someone help me out. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Micah. Yeah. God was sending the angel of death to take care of the firstborn of everyone in Egypt, and he wanted to protect the firstborn of Israel, and so they were to put blood on the top and the sides of their doorframe to say, this house is under the blood of sacrifice and is safe so that that angel would pass over it. Isn't it amazing that Jesus Christ died on Passover Sabbath day, actually the night before? He was the Passover lamb. And that's when that blood was applied, was the evening before, so that during the night, as the angel of death passed over and darkness covered the city, death did not come to those families that were under the blood. And Jesus died that very afternoon, that very evening. And in that, he fulfilled Passover. So Passover never needs to be celebrated again, moving forward. So where does religion go wrong? What is it about religion that gets us distracted from true worship and service to God? What is the problem with religion? Kenneth G. Lucy is a professor emeritus of philosophy and religion, and this is his answer to that question, what's the problem with religion? He says this, I believe the major problem with religions generally is the manner in which most people acquire their religion by way of beliefs from early childhood authority figures, most religious group members hold beliefs because those views and what they were taught were given to them as children. If one is a Muslim, it is because one was raised by Muslims. 
If one is a Mormon, it is because one's parents were Mormon. If you were raised in a Catholic, Jewish, or Hindu family, you most likely will remain a member of that religion. Now, that can be good news or bad news. You know, we don't want to disparage it, right? Because if you were raised in a Christian home and you were taught who Jesus is and what he's done, well, that's a great thing. For others, they are taught things that are false about who God is and what he's done and who we are. So for them, there's tremendous unlearning that has to take place if they're going to become true followers of Jesus Christ. So this is not necessarily good or bad. It depends on your own story. But for all of us, there does need to be an affirmation or a change from where we began as children. Even if you were raised in a wonderful Christian home where both parents uh, understood the gospel well, and they showed it to you in a good way, and you understood it. This is, this is certainly my story, and I'm so grateful for my mom and dad who deeply loved Jesus and who were raised to be faithful to him, who believed the scriptures, who practiced good practices of Christians in this day. So for me, the transition to my own faith was easy. And yet, there were some things that I hadn't owned, I just inherited, and this is the great challenge. I believe every human needs to go through this process when they are about junior high or high school, some of us take longer to get there, where we have to ask, is the faith that I was handed the faith I believe in? Is the faith that my parents practice the faith that I will practice? And so Jeff, your story is that you were raised in a Mormon family, and so that's what you understood as a child. This is what is true about God and about me. And you went through that process. How old were you when you really began to wonder about your Mormon faith? Right? Yep. Yeah, so that story, and by the way, if you couldn't hear on Zoom, Jeff was just unpacking the length of time it's taken, literally years from the time he was 16 even to now, to deconstruct what was religious but not true, and to reconstruct the truth about who am I, who is God, what has he done? What should I do? And so this process can take years. That's the very thing that Paul is addressing here. There were people from Jewish religions, but also a lot of them were from other religions. And so they were needing to unpack, deconstruct what they had learned that actually was not true. And so this is what Paul is saying. I'll read those first verses again just to show you that. He says, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. So there were religious practices around eating and drinking or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Again, these were actually Jewish, but also there were pagan practices as well. And he's saying, don't bring that forward into your life and your practice. You are free from that, from the expectations and the traditions of your own family, of another's, because in Christ, 
All of those things are taken away. They're fulfilled. Hey, you're free from these things. What they were pointing to has already come. You don't need to continue to look forward to something that has already come. And so that's the challenge is for us to learn for ourselves. What is really true today? What do I know to be true? I'll quote also Charles Durant. He's a vicar in the Roman Catholic Church. And he was asked also, what is the problem with religion? And this was his response. While we believe that the foundation of religion flows from God, the structure and practice of religion is made and created out by human hands. The problem lies in the expectation that because the religion is about God and holiness and doing what is right, all those involved in the religion will always act accordingly. Human beings are frail and subject to whim, emotion, ego, influence, judgmentalism, and sin. We try our best to teach the ways of the Lord, both through word and actions. However, as imperfect beings, religious people can fail to live out those teachings in their lives or get confused in how those teachings are to be applied. Any of you remember the bumper sticker that says, I'm okay with Jesus, it's his disciples I have trouble with, or some such bumper sticker statement like that. And I think today that's really true. And it's good for us to confess that everything we say and everything we do is not perfect and it's not in line with the scriptures. And so we don't want to transfer our shortcomings to God or to say that Christ is not real and true. We just need to acknowledge our practice and our words are not complete. And this is what Paul is talking about. So this is why we all must make the journey from an inherited faith to a personal faith. The beauty of this experience is that it allows God to reform our beliefs and practices in each generation. And this is one of the challenges I want to make to you today. Every one of you, no matter how old you are, and no matter who the members of your family are, but I encourage you for yourself, read the scriptures, pray, and think your own thoughts, and consider your own beliefs. Especially if you are upper elementary school, middle school, high school, this is a season in your life where you want to really make sure you understand what is true, what God has done, and what it means to walk with Jesus. The reason that the Reformation in the 1500s began by Martin Luther and others was necessary is because so many generations just believed and practiced what they were told by others. They let the leaders of the church and the organized Catholic church dictate what it was to believe in God and to walk with God. And they didn't investigate the scriptures for themselves. And they didn't consider, you know, is what we're being taught true or false? And that went on for so long. And the religious practices of the Christian church got so off track that it took this tremendously radical change, even Sadly, what ended up splitting the church into two, into Catholics and Protestants, to make that change. And we want to make sure that in every generation, we are getting back to the center line in every generation and not repeating for generations wrong religious practices and misunderstandings. So you have permission as a young person to find the truth for yourself, to ask yourself. And we all need to continually be asking 
what part of what I believe and what part of what I practice is actually true, actually has meaning to it, is actually right and reflects what is real and what is true and who God is and set ourselves free. If we can reform ourselves and we reform each generation, we will stay on track as the church. And this means for some of us that are three and four generations into the church, we need to listen to the young voices in our church. We especially need to be sensitive to things that bring tension for them and that are confusing to them and ask why. Is it possible that they, with their fresh eyes, are actually seeing a place where we have gotten off, where we've actually become kind of calloused and just assumed, and we just keep going on in that direction? We need to be sensitive to fresh eyes and fresh hearts who struggle and either help them understand what they misunderstand or possibly correct what is actually wrong in us. And then you have that experience as your kids ask you questions and you give the answer that comes pretty quick and it's not enough and they add a why to it or they don't understand it and then you have to think a little deeper and a little harder. That's a wonderful process. That's reformation happening within yourself and within your children. I encourage that. So let's get on to the, the rest of this verse, uh, this passage. We'll get into verses 18 and 19 right now. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Let me back up. <clears throat> so what is good religion? What is pure religion? Great answer to that comes from the book of James. And James says this. He says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distresses and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. What a contrast. The two things that he suggests that are really true and good religion at the heart of religion are service to those who need it most, meeting the needs of those who are challenged in meeting their own needs, and to keep yourself pure. What a great distance it is from that idea and this idea of Sabbaths and practices and the worship of angels. They're so different. And it's really a call to simplicity, to relationships, to, to being caring humans. That's what good religion is. I think as adults, we get too sophisticated and too complicated. And we get into all these debates about nuances, about what is right and what is wrong, what is theologically true and untrue. And I'm not disparaging maturity and the depth of understanding. So much has come from it. But we can be overoccupied with that, and we can actually fail in the simplest of um, the things that God would have us to do. I remember being a part of a discussion on a deeply theological um, topic and there were a bunch of us in the room and the man who was speaking to us was brilliant and he had studied his entire life and in the midst of it we were having a little bit of a debate and um, someone made something of a counter argument and and this gentleman came back with this very solid very well thought through um, response but in it and it was sadly clear to everyone in the room it was it, there was arrogance in it there was rudeness in it and there was a bit of a superiority over the one who had spoken to him in it. And in my heart, I was so sad. I was like, how do you get this deep into the knowledge of God and fail to be kind and fail to be humble and fail to be patient? And that's what we want to watch for in ourselves. We know that we've gotten way off base if 
the complexity and the theology is there. And yet in the simplest ways, like caring for orphans and widows and keeping ourselves pure, we fail. And there, there's a need for reformation. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. All right, so let's move into those last two verses for today. Colossians 2, 18 and 19. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. What kind of religion are we passing on to our children and our grandchildren, to our friends and to our neighbors? Is it the religion of expectations and secrets and complex theological concepts? Or is it the religion of love and purity? How do we maintain a religion of love and purity? Paul says right here in these verses, stay connected to the head. Stay connected to the head. This is our hope. And it's such a simple idea. Any one of us can do it. And this is where I want us to take a little bit of time to consider where we're at today. Are you connected to the head? Are you connected to Jesus Christ? It seems like a trite statement to say that um, Christianity is a religion and not a relationship. And there's something about that that's overly simplistic because Christianity is a religion and we don't need to dump that. But what that phrase is trying to emphasize is that the priority in being a Christian, in being in Christ, is connection. Is connection to Jesus, to the Father, to the Son. And it's also about connection with humans. And if we're well connected to God, we will be well connected to humans. And I can't imagine a better time for Christians everywhere throughout the globe than right now to really make sure that we are well connected to Jesus. So many voices out there are telling us to think and do so many different things. And there are invitations to a hundred different conversations about what's important and what matters. But what are the conversations that are going to change lives? What are the conversations that are going to help people be connected to Jesus? Are you connected well to Jesus? I want to give you some time right now. I want to encourage you just to set aside your Bible. And uh, if you need to close your eyes, if you need to look down, or if you just need to kind of take a pensive position, I want to give you a few minutes to ask yourself the question and to ask Jesus himself, are we good? Are we well connected? Uh, would you join me in just asking that question and praying a little bit? Father, we're so grateful that you came to us because we couldn't come to you, that you sent Jesus to become like us and to become down, to be present where we are not only 2,000 years ago, but by the Holy Spirit today. Jesus, we thank you that you are near. And we want to, all of us together, as this family, turn our attention fully to you right now. 
Jesus, would you affirm for us or let us know if it's not true? Are we connected to you today? Are we connected to you? Holy Spirit, would you search us and show us if there's a disconnect, if there's an offense, or if there's a lie that has pulled us away from connection? What is the offense? What is the lie? Jesus, we thank you that the only thing you require of us is something we can do. That all you require is confession. That we would just agree with you. So, Father, we, within our souls, quietly now, confess any ways that we have disconnected ourselves. Holy Spirit, we pray that if we have misunderstood truth about ourselves, about someone else, or about you, would you speak to us right now about what is actually true? Holy Spirit, lead us away from false understanding. What do I believe that isn't true? Lord Jesus, we thank you again that you have put sin and death to rest and that we no longer need to carry forward our own sin or the sin that has been committed against us. But by your death and resurrection, your forgiveness allows us to forgive. Thank you for forgiving us for all that we've done that is contrary to love. And we ask you to give us the strength to forgive all who have hurt us, who have wounded us, who have failed to love us. Father, I praise you that we can walk into a new day without dragging in yesterday. That yesterday is done. That sin and death have been laid to rest. Would you give us the strength to release yesterday? and to be fully present in today, into the glory of this day, a day that's never happened before, with conversations that have never been had and activities that have never been done as they're going to be done today. God, let us understand the newness. Jesus, you said, I make everything new. Father, you even prophesied through the prophet Isaiah to Jerusalem, to the Israelites, look, I'm making everything new. And we receive that, and we ask that we might experience it, and we might reflect it, and we might show it to those around us that today is new, that we are free. God, you're so good. Life in Jesus is so amazing. Let us embrace it fully. Help us, God, to shed the past, to shed sin, to shed death, 
and to live in the fullness and the newness of your kingdom today. Let's take the bread and the cup and uh, let's take communion together. Jesus took bread during a meal with his disciples and he said, this represents my body that is given for you, the last sacrifice that will ever be made for sin. Remember my death. At the end of the meal, he took a cup filled with wine <clears throat> and he said, this, this wine represents a new covenant. The original covenant is fulfilled. The covenant that I give to you today is a covenant not by o- obedience through rules, through laws, but I give to you a covenant of faith and the power of the Holy Spirit. The next couple of songs that we have to worship this morning are going to take us deeper into what we just did and remind us of the power and the beauty of Jesus' death and resurrection. So Ian and Chelsea, would you come and lead us? And let's sing together these songs. Let's really pay attention to the words so that we can express them fully and completely from our hearts.